Howdy, y'all. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. My name is Ben Fields. I'm glad you're here. I've got Wayne Bledsoe on the show today. Wayne's a legend, man. Uh, Wayne's a music journalist, wrote for the new Sentinel Music and Entertainment for uh, 36 years. Or worked there 36 years. He, he wrote about 31 of those years, maybe 32. Uh, he writes for Blank Newspaper now. He's been around. He's seen it all. He's interviewed Dolly Parton. He's interviewed Ray Charles many, many times. Any musician who's been through town in the last 40 years, you can almost bet that Wayne Bledsoe has interviewed them and written about it. Wayne is one of the most beloved members of our music community in Knoxville. And uh, he's, he's had a tremendous amount of loss in his life, uh, close family and uh, grief. And Wayne has a family of people here who care so much about him and a community that rallies around him. Uh, it's something like I've, I've never seen. I've, I've never seen someone who is so loved by a community like Wayne Bledsoe is. And I am so, so honored to sit down with him and have a chat. And we had a good chat, a really good chat. I, I liked it. I hope you guys do too. Um, let's, let's get to it. Let's get into to my chat with, with my new friend, Wayne Bledsoe. We're doing the pop cast. Wayne. Ben. Thanks for being here, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to meet you. I'm glad to meet you, too. I'm already having a good time. Good. I've, I've been a, a fan of yours for, for a while, and I've, I've known about, about your stuff. Of course, I've ta- anybody that lives around here has taken in your, uh, your wisdom over the years. <laughs> Thanks. I hope somebody <laughs> thinks it's wisdom. Well, I run, I, like, I, I run into you at your uh, – I see you at your show, the, the 6 o'clock swerve. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I just came from that. Yeah. The, is it every Thursday at 6? Mm-hmm. Every Thursday at 6. At Barley's? Yep. Who, who, uh, who was tonight? Tonight was Tractorhead. Okay. And Tractorhead are just rock and roll as rock and roll can be. They're great. Really? Are they local? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is uh, 6 o'clock swerve all local folks? It's not all local folks, but that's it's mostly. Um, some folks come in. Erin Coburn came in. She's from Cincinnati. She okay. came in a couple of weeks ago. And Hudost was going to come in there um, living up in Kentucky. But um, I had a couple of people from out of town cancel just because of COVID. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's happening yeah. everywhere. How do you uh, how do you book it? Do you book it yourself or does, mm-hmm. does Kyle help you or do you? No, I've always booked it myself. Really? Is it through WDVX or no? Well, yeah, it, it airs on WDVX and uh, I've been doing it for five or six years now. That's awesome. I've been doing my late night show on WDVX for 19 years. Man, what, when's that? That is midnight to 3 a.m. on Saturday nights. <laughs> How do you stay up that late? I can't do that. Well, you know, it used to go until 4 a.m. And I realized really? that the extra hour was killing me. That was it? That yeah, was the, it, it was, was the, the extra hour. It was because I would get like hit 3 a.m. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm all right. And then the, that last hour would just drag. Yeah, you can get to bed at 3.30 and it feels like uh, it, it feels like just a late night. You get to bed at 4.30, it feels like you pulled an all night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's <laughs> it was like I would get up at like 1 o'clock and I'd be dead all Sunday. Yeah. And it was like that last hour was, I mean, and le- I have guests on the show. And that always makes it go faster and, you, you know, keeps your adrenaline up and it's more fun. But um, there, the nights, like most nights, the bands would be like 
totally like tanking at, at that three to four really? a.m. hour. And yeah, they've been drinking all night. <laughs> yeah. And they've been, you know, and they're leaving. And it's like, and now I'm just like, and the nights that I didn't have bands on, I would just be falling asleep. Nearby. Oh, bet. Do you do them at, at the studio there at the mm-hmm. visitor center? Yeah. And in fact, during the pandemic, I think I was about the only person who was still doing yeah. shows at the studio. And for the pandemic, I didn't have guests on. Ah, uh, yeah. Just and you in the studio? Just me in the studio. And it was wearing me out. But I have... I have people who check in. I've got uh, regular listeners. I've got a listener in Spain, Dave in Spain. He's like from England and retired to this little town in Spain, and he's been listening forever. He listens on his way to church uh, well, on Sunday morning. No, he just gets up early. It's at five <laughs> o'clock where he is, and okay, he gets up early. And then uh, Alan in England and Mark in Israel. Oh, man. And then other folks. I mean, the best thing is when people are like stumbling out of the bars and they're getting going home. And I play something really crazy, and I get a call with somebody like saying, "What in the hell is this?" <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the world. So you take callers? Well, I don't. I don't put them on the air, but people call me in between okay. songs, and then people email me, and you know they text me on or text me sometimes if they have my phone number, which some people do, and then they'll you know send messages on Facebook. And you've been doing this a while, haven't you? You've been a music journalist, is that right? Is that how you got your start? Yeah, I started, you know, the funny thing about the way I started is I don't have a degree. Okay. Which has, uh, you know, is particularly after I got laid off at the Sentinel has uh, been a little bit of a hindrance. But um, I was, you know, I worked for my high school newspaper and I wrote a bunch of stuff and I was in art and English in college, but mm. I didn't graduate. And I got a job at the Sentinel as a copy clerk. Okay. What's which, a copy clerk? A copy clerk is somebody who in the old days basically just ran stuff around. You know, you take pictures to the engraving room. Mm. You would go to the teletype machines. If you watch an old, like, newspaper movie, you'll hear. And it was like things that all that typed out stories from around the country or the world, wherever things were coming from. And the copy clerk, my main duty was tearing those stories off, separating them out and getting them to the right people. Hmm. And, uh, is this during the daytime when this stuff's happening or is it, is it coming off the presses that, you know, well, in, we were, in Europe? And, <laughs> well, the Sentinel was an afternoon paper. Then there were shifts. It was 24 hours. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would have to work the midnight to, to 6 a.m. shift and you'd get it at night, it would really start cranking up about 4 a.m. Mm. But uh, we were an afternoon paper at the time, so most of the time I would get there at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock, depending on the shift, and and start separating stuff out and tearing it wow. up. So, so this was this was the Sentinel? This was the Sentinel so in you, the 80s. I started in 1981. Are you a Knoxville guy? Mm-hmm. Did you grow up here? Yeah. Where'd you grow, go to school and all that? I, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Hall's Crossroads. Okay. My family's all from Union County. Nice. And uh, I'll tell people, like, you know, people talk about moonshiners. My family were all moonshiners. Okay. Right? In That's the great. 40s and 50s. Yeah. 30s. And 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 I guess, uh, is it 33 Broadway goes up into Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Is Probably that right? 33. It goes, yeah, it goes Broadway, which, you know, is Henley Street, turns yeah. into Broadway, turns into Maynardville Highway. Yeah. It's Highway 33. It goes straight through Union County all the way up to Cumberland Gap. Yeah. Middlesboro, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Middlesboro. Yeah. I, I uh, lived in uh, Cumberland Gap when I was like, uh, I don't know, one year old up until I was about school age. 
up there. Our backyard was in Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, uh, 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 the, were the butchers around when you were up in the, Oh, yeah. So you know about Redgate and all that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. went to school with Butch, who was- uh, Which one's that? He is CL's son. CH's son? CH's son, yeah, not okay. CHCL. Yeah. Yeah, CH. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that um, Cecil is the was the grandfather, the old okay. man, and then it was Jake and CH. My my aunt worked for the banks mm-hmm. and uh Shirley Butcher, who is CH's mm-hmm. wife, You're right? uh was my aunt's best friend. So oh, okay. I, I've known I've known or I knew Shirley. She's passed away mm-hmm. uh recently, but uh, I remember going up to Redgate when I was like twelve or thirteen yeah. years old at Christmas time and yeah. visiting the Butcher family up yeah. there. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, they always had the rodeo and then they had blue grass festivals yeah. and... do they do the uh is it the fourth of july rodeo that they do i think there? so i Something think they're still like doing that? it yeah. and they did festivals up there yeah did you ever go to any of those mm-hmm. uh there was one year they had john hartford there oh man um i, I listened to some john hartford today john hartford was wonderful <laughs> he was he was terrific all those i mean he was he was like the center of like the hippie alternative movement in nashville right he was the he was the Billy Strings of uh, <laughs> the 70s, I guess. Oh, yeah. He was, I mean, and it's funny because when the, the album Aeroplane came out. One of my favorites. Right. I mean, it's a Desert Island disc for me. And it changed everything. You know, Sam Bush will tell you how much it changed. Didn't he? Didn't Sam Bush play in Hartford's band? I don't think he ever actually played in Hartford's band. They played not? together. Okay. But I don't think he was actually in, in Hartford's band. Okay. So Hall's Crossroads, you went to Hall's High School? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then went to UT or no? Yeah. Okay. I I didn't didn't graduate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, me too. There you (laughs) go. Same same story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So how old were you when you got up at the Sentinel? Uh, 21. I started in 1981. Okay. And then so copy clerk. And then did you, did you, uh, you were the guy that was always there. So I assume you, you uh, uh, met everybody, worked your way into some other positions there, I guess. The interesting thing is, um, the union kind of looked the other way. I was in uh, um, the person who did the community news section, Barbara Asbury, mm-hmm. who kind of became my mentor there. Okay. She like let me write for the community news section, and the union kind of looked the other way because they knew I was trying to you know prove that I could write. So it was a union paper, and you weren't in the union. Well, I was in the union. I joined the union uh. as quick as I could, which they didn't really encourage copy clerks to join it because they couldn't really get them much. But I believe in unions very strongly, and I joined okay. as a copy clerk, and so did some uh, other copy clerk friends. But um, so I started writing, and uh, then I started writing about music because nobody else was writing about jazz or country music. Betsy what was Pick- Asbury writing about? She was an editor. Okay. And uh, Betsy Pickle, who was a copy editor at the time, she was writing about rock music here and there. Okay. And uh, so we were both doing that, and. Then I became a graphic artist. We got a new editor. Okay, Asbury left. No, no, she was she was the she was the community news editor. We got a new main editor. Ralph okay. Millett left, okay. and uh, and there was an interim where we had a fellow Marvin West who was a managing editor, and then we got Harry Moscos. He came in, and he went through the staff and said, you know, what are the things that you can do? What are you good at? And I said, well, I'm also a graphic artist. So I moved up to, I was a copy clerk for half the week and a graphic artist for half the week. Mm -hmm. And of course I'd been writing too. And I went in and asked the managing editor at the time, who was Marvin. I said, is there any chance if I go back to school that you'll hire me as a writer? 
because I've been writing a lot. And he said, no, no, no. We only hire from larger newspapers, which I thought was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Who's <laughs> going to come from a larger newspaper to a smaller newspaper? And when you're not going to pay them, a, you know, if you're going to pay them a big amount, maybe so. But that wasn't happening. And I thought, well, to hell with this. You know, I'm going to quit writing for a while. And in about six months, he was gone. And we got a new managing editor named Burl Schwartz. And Burl, unbeknownst to me, had been having my stories typed in. He was the wire editor in Washington. He had been having my stories typed in and sent all over the country. So at the same time I was being told that I wouldn't be hired as a writer at the Sentinel, I had stories in the Chicago Tribune. Because he was seeing your stuff across the wire? He was sending it across the wire. He was having the typist in Washington type my stories in because they weren't sending them in. He would have somebody hand type them in and send them out all over the country. So my stories were going out all over the country and I didn't know it. So were you writing about national acts? Yeah. I mean, I was writing about, uh, you know, whatever jazz or country acts came in. Mm -hmm. And I actually knew about those genres. I knew about, I liked all genres of music. So he was having that stuff typed in. It was, it was going in much bigger newspapers than the new Sentinel, (laughs) but I had no idea. (laughs) And then when he showed up, it was like, he was surprised that I wasn't a writer. Really? Because he knew your name. He'd seen Right, he'd been having my stuff typed in specifically. Yeah. So when he showed up, he said, he said, next time a writing job comes up, put in for it. So I did. And I got a job as a a feature writer at the Sentinel. What were you writing about? I started writing about music and entertainment. Really? And we started, at the time, we didn't really have an entertainment section. We had a Sunday magazine section that uh, had... It was mostly entertainment, but then we started a Friday section called Detours, which they chose the name I chose for it, or the name I submitted, so I was real happy of that, but they changed it as every couple of years to something different. <laughs> but um, we put an emphasis on entertainment, and I started writing, and my stuff was, he was, it was getting sent out all over the country, so I had stories eventually all over the world because people would pick up stuff from Scripps Howard News Service where mm-hmm. it was all going out. So how does that work? When when I mean Scripps Howard was a, a huge conglomerate right. of print media and other media too at the time or just um, just print? They had some like television interest, but at the time there had been a law that you could only own like so many media outlets. Yeah, it was like actually some a, antitrust law. It was or a something. very good law and I wish we yeah. still had it. Right. But if you like owned a TV station, you couldn't own the newspaper, and you know there's all these different rules Pro- protecting consumers from Prote- monopolies. Exactly, they could protecting tell them whatever they want. Yeah, protecting people from what's happening right now on which, Facebook. Yeah, or or you know, uh, uh, now you can own every damn radio station in a town. Mm-hmm. You can buy them all up, and there's only one source of news in that town. Right. Which is wrong. And Even though there's four different papers, it's all coming from the same Yeah, place. I mean, and what happens is, you know, in, in every town is the newspapers, you know, the dominant newspaper ran the other newspaper out of business or bought it or whatever. Right. And the same thing with radio stations and television sure. stations. Okay. So so when when Scripps is taking your stuff, Scripps Howard at the time, they're taking your stuff and they're putting it in other markets, putting it in other papers? Right. And it was in... Um, some of it was just papers that Scripps Howard owned, but you could subscribe to the Scripps Howard News Service, and then you could pick up whatever stories came out across the news service. And that's what was happening. I had stories in Mexico, and I had, wow. I had stories all over the place. 
So who who all were who were the, some of the big like you were interviewing artists right when they came through town or mm-hmm. or wherever right who were some of the ones that that were coming through during that time eighty one you said you started mm-hmm. so through the eighties like who who was who were the big hitters that you were getting to talk to like you and I are sitting down here right now well the the first big thing I wrote when I was actually hired as a writer I was hired as a writer in eighty five officially okay. And I did a series on the history of East of, of country music in East Tennessee. Okay. And so for that, I interviewed Dolly Parton, uh, Roy Acuff, Chet Atkins. Isley um, Brothers? Was that a... No, you're, you're thinking about the... Um, um, not the Isley Brothers, the uh, oh, Lubin yeah, Brothers. The, yes. The Lubin Brothers. Yeah, I didn't sorry, talk to not the, the Isley Brothers. They were a funk duo or something, right? Yeah, they're an R&B group. R&B group they, yeah. they shout and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, those hits. Yeah. But yeah, the Leuven brothers I didn't talk to at the time. I talked with Charlie Leuven later. But um they were I mean, they spent time here, Flat and Scruggs spent time here. But I talked specifically to the people who started here. Gotcha. And uh Carl Smith was another one who okay. was a huge hit maker in the fifties. People don't remember him now, but he was from Maynardville, he was from Union County. Roy okay. Acuff was originally from Union County and grew yeah. up in Fountain City. And uh gosh, uh, Don Everly Tons of folks. The Everly Brothers. That's right. what I was thinking of, not the Isley Brothers. Yeah, the Everly Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Everly Brothers went to high school here. And yeah. So um, I talked to Don Everly. I talked with, uh, you know, Kaz Walker, who was the impresario, the million-dollar grocer, <laughs> who was such a gothic combination of just son of a bitch and, and great guy, depending yeah. on – the situation. My mom's told me some stories about Kaz Walker. He was a larger than life character oh, around totally, here. Totally. And I hate the fact that he's become this sort of folk hero. Right. Because he was an asshole. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was much more complicated than that. Yeah. It's like, on one hand, he was a monster. And on the other hand, he was like this great guy. Yeah. I interviewed him. I was more intimidated talking to him than probably anybody I've ever interviewed. Just too monolithic of a guy, just too 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 big. It well, just... he was an, I mean, he was in his late eighties when I talked to him, and he was still kind of intimidating. Really? Yeah. He had to be a big personality, as as much weight as he threw around around here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the 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 classic story about Cas Walker is there's a picture of him uh, throwing a punch at a city councilman. He was a city councilman, and he was later he was mayor for a little while. Kaz Walker was? Yeah. Yeah. And he threw a punch at a fellow city councilman, and the picture ran in some Soviet newspaper. That's The headline was, American Democracy in Action. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think the picture originally ran in the journal, but it's classic. You know? I heard you interviewed Ray Charles. Is that right? Or Many no? times. Many I loved times. Ray Charles. Really? When was that? In the 80s? Uh, 80s up into... Not too long before he died. He used to come here on a pretty regular basis, about yeah. every couple of years. Where'd he play? Well, um, he, sometimes he played with the symphony. He played on the mm. World's Fair Park one time. He played lots of different places in town. Okay. But by the time I was interviewing, it was it was more, um, you know, auditory, civic auditorium, things like that. But, I mean, earlier he'd played at, like, I think he played the Village Barn at some point. He played small that? clubs. What's that? That was, a, that was a club that used to be out on Asheville yeah, Asheville oh, wow. Highway. Okay, and uh, lots of acts played there. So, how long were you were you riding with the Sentinel? How long did that? I mean, eighty five. You started eighty. Well, or, or, or got the I got the, the real writing job. That's when I got the real writing job. I was there for thirty six years. Oh my gosh, Wayne. Yeah. Do you write about music the whole time you were there? Uh, music and other things. I mean, entertainment. 
Well, yeah, uh, entertainment yeah. generally. I mean, I interviewed some authors. I interviewed Kurt Vonnegut, which wow. that was like a, you know, he's one of my all-time favorite and wow. most influential people ever. That's required reading for every high school in, in America. <laughs> oh, yeah. Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. Everybody ought to read Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle. Right. If nothing else. What about uh, James Agee? Did you ever talk to that guy? No, James Agee died before, oh, you know, okay. long before I, I was into that. There, I mean, I missed several people I wish I'd been able to interview who died before I started. But I got, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, which wow. he was great. Um, gosh, Willie Nelson many times. He didn't offer me. I interviewed him in the back of his bus one time, and he didn't offer me any weed. That he, was kind of disappointing. He didn't? No. <laughs> we, were in the... Hunts, we were in Huntsville, Alabama. I think he thought he would get arrested. Yeah, that's not the story you want. You, <laughs> Todd Steed was here, and he was telling me about uh, 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 running into Ozzy Osbourne in the, at the bar at the at the Hyatt uh -huh. in uh, in Knoxville after a show, and said, you know, Ozzy just cussed him out, and said, "Get the fuck out of here," you know. And I'm oh like, that's God. the story you want, right there. You want Ozzy cussing you out, you know. You want you 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 want Willie Nelson offering you the joint, yeah. You know, yeah, but. <laughs> But I got along great with Willie. I mean, the the only time I ever wished I played golf, because I mean, I've never played golf. We were talking about, one of the times I interviewed him, we were talking about Hank Williams, and we were just wow. really connecting. And he said, do you golf? I'm like, no. <laughs> and oh, it's no. Like, you know, I was like, man, if, if I could have like, get a crash course in golf, yeah, that's, should, when you, yeah. that's when you lie and it's like, you know, <laughs> but I didn't. Go out there and hack it up a little bit. Yeah, I would have done any, I mean, kind of, Go play golf with Willie Nelson. Give me a break. That would have been great. So when did when did Ashley start the Ella Garoos thing and start bringing those acts through? I think Ella Garoos was about ninety ninety one someplace. Okay, there. so you were you were in your sophomore season at that point. Starting to well, yeah. I mean, it was. Um, I've been friends with Ashley for a long time. Really? Ashley, um, when I was still a copy clerk, he started booking shows, okay. and he would come into the Sentinel and talk to a guy who was the entertainment editor slash writer at the time named Kim Ken Mink. And Ken would like, Ashley would go and talk to Ken and we'd be sitting out there at like this table where all the copy clerks sat and we were thinking Ken does not know who the hell he's gonna you know, who Ashley's talking about. And Ken would come out after he talked with Ashley and drop an album in front of us and go, you know who this guy is? Yeah. And we would know who it was and tell him who it was. And then not too long after that, Ken left. Okay. And I started writing about them of the people that Ashley was bringing in. So that's when I got to know Ashley. But we, Ashley and I, Knoxville is, I mean, it's, there's not six degrees in Knoxville. There's yeah, two three, degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it turned out that Ashley, we were, we, we were just connected a bunch of different ways. Yeah. But we got to be friends. And I mean, I was always covering the stuff that he was writing about. And when Ella Garou started, I was one of the first people he called up to come out and look at what he was planning on doing. Really? And I went and looked at the club. And it was, you know, that was, it was like a basement under, at the time, Hughley's music was going in on top of it. They were re revitalizing the old city. And there was a music store, Hughley's, on top of it. And Ella Garou's was the basement. I've had so many people tell me where Ella Garuz is, and I still, for some reason, have not made the connection in my mind. I just know the old city. Well, the melting pot is, I think the melting pot's still there. It yeah. took its place. That's okay. where Ella Garuz was. It was totally a basement club. Okay. It's very claustrophobic in a way. Yeah. But it got huge acts, right? Yeah, it was amazing. I saw <laughs> Dr. John, uh, John Hyatt, um, 
Loudon Wainwright, the Neville brothers. Um, Delbert McClinton, Delbert I heard. Delbert McClinton. Played a few times. Sun Ra. Really? Yeah. Man. It was amazing the stuff you brought in. How does how does that happen? How does a how does a basement club pull that kind of stuff? Well, because Ashley had a good reputation. Okay, you know he uh, he started booking things at the Laurel Theater, like renting the place for like twenty five bucks when you could do that, yeah. and he would bring in these kind of obscure jazz acts, and he started bringing like what were later called new age acts, people who were on Wyndham Hill. Mm. Those were some of the early ones, and. Uh, he he got a little niche there, and then people knew that they could. They acts knew they could trust him, hmm. and then he opened Elgaroos, and he had some investors, and there were. I saw people in two weeks that I'd waited my entire life to see. Really, it and, was that quick. He just had he had the connections. He was getting people to come through. Yeah, and it was he was competing with himself. That was the pro- part of the problem was. You just couldn't keep up. I mean, I was going in for free because I was reviewing the stuff and writing about it. And hell, I couldn't. I mean, and some of these were people I'd wanted to see as long as I'd been listening to music, and I didn't have the time to go see them all. Really? Yeah. So, so he was going. He was going too fast. It was too good. There wasn't. A, yeah. that, I mean, people could only go out and see live music a couple nights a week, right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And it was. I mean, and at the time in Knoxville, there was only like this this kind of set an amount of people that were willing to go out and right. knew these acts. Yeah. You've got a market, <laughs> right? You've got a market and it's finite. Yeah. And of course I was writing about them and Betsy was writing some about some of them, but um, you know, even we couldn't get out and see them all. Right. It was amazing. I mean, really, I mean, I think the opening weekend, it was the Neville brothers and Loudon Wainwright. Oh. And God, I can't remember who all else, but it was somebody nearly every night of the week. It's nuts. That's what you mean by competing with himself. Yeah. You're just wearing the marketplace. Yeah. Out. I mean, People you couldn't just, do it. You, if you had the money, you didn't have the time. Did he book any other venues at the time or was he just working his own his own place? Well, when he did, when he was doing Elegaroos, it was mostly all concentrated on Elegaroos. Okay. I mean, he had booked like the Bijou and he booked the Laurel and just different yeah. things. I don't think at the time he was booking anything as big as the, the Tennessee. But those rooms weren't really what they are now, right? At that time, as far as... Um, I don't know. The, the, the Bijou seems like it can pull acts four or five nights a week. And it seems like, you know, of course, they've done a ton of renovations over the last 10 or 15 years to make that a, a, a very good place to uh, visit and see live music. But I, I always got the feeling once Tennessee Theater got remodeled and mm-hmm. once the Bijou got remodeled, that it was kind of this rebirth. And they had kind of laid dormant for a little while. Is that true? Or, or am I just or did I just get in at the right time? <laughs> it's It's a combination of things. The Bijou, of course, when I was a little kid, the Bijou was a stag theater. What's a stag theater? It showed like... Pornographic films? Well, what was pornographic for the time uh, in okay. the 60s? Showgirls. <laughs> well, not showgirls. I mean, it would be what you would... Something like it. What then. you would call nudie cuties. Okay. Like when in, when I was a kid in the 60s, you'd see those ads and it would be, you know, cheating wives or something like that. Ah. And it would be nudity, but not like full-on sex right it's tasteful (laughs) well the pre-porn days before you get away with it porn really started in like you know deep throat which was about 74 75 someplace in that era which must have been huge if they if they named the nixon uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I guess well, because it. of that. Yeah, was that it had to have been earlier than that. earlier it than that. right? Because Deep Throat, Watergate scandal, seventy three. Yeah. So yeah, it must have been seventy two that Deep Throat came. But out. it was a household name. 
Yeah, everybody it, knew it. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. Right. I mean, allowed. the porn was like in the 60s when the basically there was a there was a, a Supreme Court judgment over pornography and uh you know people started throwing things in movies and you and realized you're not going to go to jail for the rest of your life ah, over some silly gotcha thing but okay so yeah that was so that was the late 60s but the early 70s is when that hit was the Tennessee theater a stag theater too no, just no, the bijou no the Tennessee theater was a regular first run movie movie house palace yeah until <laughs> Early seventies. Okay. Did it stay open since it it opened in twenty nine, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right after the the depression, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, well, it's right at the beginning. Right of the at the beginning of the depression, probably wouldn't have opened had it a year later. It probably probably not. wouldn't have opened. But you know, during the depression, actually, movie houses did really well. Oh, because they had air conditioning and they were a way to escape. There was yeah. escapism. That was huge was in my cheap. film history class. It was yeah. like. Uh, American cinema actually went through a bit of a renaissance around that time yeah. because it it provided people a place to forget about mm-hmm. what what <laughs> the yeah, shitty it's exactly world right it's going on around them yeah so so when did when did those venues um, kind of start to become I don't know, not what they are now but when did they start to become these yeah, you know, uh, bastions of live music that are some of the best indoor rooms in the southeast. Well, I would, I'd rather see a show at the Bijou than anywhere. Yeah, um, it was, well, the Bijou, which was owned by a church when it was a stag film ch- house, which I was always fascinated by. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> but it was in danger of being torn down, and a group got together and started raising money to save it, and that would have been mid 70s and i know that they started show they started having concerts there it was still in rough shape okay but they started having concerts there by i think the first show i saw there was 76 or 77 that was a concert okay and uh someplace around there and then the tennessee closed and they started showing vintage films okay and P, there was a big, you know, movement to save it and um, to save the Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was uh, James Dick who owned IVK. He yeah, basically James saved Dick. it. Yeah, and it became then a nonprofit historic designated theater. Uh-huh. And then they wound up. Um, I can't think of the fellow who used to book it. There was a fellow who used to book some shows there, some concerts there. But he wasn't very creative with it. And then when AC Entertainment started doing bigger things, uh-huh. AC wound up managing both of them. The and, Bijou and the Tennessee? Right. Yeah. And then they started just bringing in all sorts of great stuff. Was that before Bonnaroo started? Yeah. Was, that, was yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. So so Ashley had this had this uh, reputation coming out of the 90s and, and Elegaroos, and then he started booking these bigger rooms mm-hmm. in, in town so he could – a bigger draw, right? A little mm-hmm. bit more money. Bigger acts could come through. Well, and the interesting thing, and you and you ought to, you know, you got to have Ashley on this show sometime. He'd to. talk to you. But um, he had to file for bankruptcy over Elgaroos. Yeah, I heard that there were some rough times there. Right. Yeah. But right after he filed for bankruptcy, Wenton Marsalis's manager called him up and said, "We want to come through town. We want you to book a show." And he did. And it brought him back to life because Ashley had booked Winton at Elegaroos. Sure. And I mean, they knew that and they knew to trust him. And he started booking that and it he got him back right on track. Really? 
Yeah, and so he started, you know, booking different venues around town. And it was it was really Ashley with AC Entertainment, and then um, WDVX came in later. WDVX, I was on the original board in 1992 before it had call letters. Wow. Still a camper? Well, that was before the camper. My gosh. That was before there was anything. That was just when it was an idea. And then I got off to write about it. I got off the board so I could write about it without having a conflict of interest. There you go. And Tony Lawson and Don Burgraff got it up on the air when it looked like it was not going to get on the air. Really? And that was 1997 that okay. it actually officially like went on. But, I mean, they started on a back porch. Yeah. And then they got the idea for the camper after it was in a, on a back porch. Wow. So that's about – that's right around the time, too, that, like, the Hot Summer Nights stuff was happening, too. Did you write about any of that oh, stuff? Yeah. I wrote about all that. Yeah. That was my first concert was Dave Matthews in oh, really? 1994. Yeah. yeah. Or something like that. Or 95. Yeah. That was, that was Ashley too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, and, and that was big acts that uh, summertime outdoors, I guess the only other uh, venue that, that, that was that size at the time would have been Thompson Bowling. Yeah. Um, well, that was, I mean, the, the Dave Matthews stuff's on World, World's Fair Park. Now was that called Hot Summer Nights or what was the thing on Market Square? Oh, that was uh, that that was called uh, uh, Sundown in the City. That's right, that's right. Yeah, but yeah. Hot Summer Nights was in the nineties, right? Mid nineties or Steve Miller Band a couple times. Oh, I yeah, think no. it was like Counting Crows, Jewel. Uh, you know that. Los Lobos. Yeah, Ray Charles. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, there too? But yeah. it was a whole series, right? Mm-hmm. Were you still at the Sentinel at the time? Oh yeah, writing all writing about all that stuff. Yeah, too? that was the that was right in the thick of it. That's when I was writing. Like I couldn't keep up with everything coming through. But were there a ton of big acts like that? Big net big. Dave Matthews type acts mm-hmm. coming through at the time that that were that be- before that they were just playing Thompson Bowling or, or somewhere else like that. Well, or did- we had we didn't have as many as other places. We had this incredibly prohibitive entertainment tax. It was nearly twenty percent. Huh? What's that? What's an entertainment tax? Well, Is that was, what the band has to put, pay to play? Well, and you know, it's either added onto the ticket or it comes off the top of you know their profits. And yeah, I mean Thompson Bowling. The part of that tax was the was you know went to building Thompson Bowling. Okay. Before Thompson Bowling, it was Stokely Athletic Center. Right. Was that the same? Was that in the same place? No. No, it was somewhere different. Yeah. Stokely, Stokely Athletic Center is over in the right. The Athletic Center has been rebuilt. Was that Alumni Gym? Was that a, no? That no, was di- another somewhere band. different. Yeah. Did, did, were, did bands play at Alumni Gym yeah, too? Yeah. Okay. I saw B fifty twos there and wow. Spin Doctors and so nineties. Yeah, '90s and and before that, I saw I saw the Jay Giles band, and U2 opened for them, and I still think the Jay Giles band was better. Ah, yes. <laughs> My girlfriend would hate me saying that, but I do. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. We're kind of positioned in this spot with I forty and seventy five coming together. That's a whole other story. The malfunction junction days right. and all that. Mm-hmm. But forty and seventy five coming together through here. It's right. an easy stop for a band to to to, to book right. for a midweek show. Mm-hmm. You know, in between Atlanta and Louisville or you yeah. know where wherever else where, wherever else they're going. So I can only assume that you got a lot of opportunities to write about some some pretty good acts. You know, do, doing mid doing midweek stops. Yeah, um, you know, the bigger acts, back when I started, Betsy was doing more of those because those would be like the rock acts, and I was doing more jazz and country stuff. Okay. You know what I mean? I like. I think the the first big act was that I wrote about was Ricky Skaggs. 
Nice. So he was big then. Yeah. I mean, that okay. was like early 80s, mid 80s. He just took, he took off. So. Kentucky Thunder, his band then, or was that later? No, that was later. Okay. Um, he just, I don't know what he called his band back he then. He didn't need a band. Well, I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had great people. Well, he, did, he didn't need a name for it. He could trade on his yeah. name. That's what I'm but yeah, Kentucky Thunder came in when he started doing the bluegrass stuff again. Gotcha. Because he'd come out of the bluegrass market, he went to mainstream country. And then later on, he went back to bluegrass. Is he related to Boscags? No, no, no. just just happened to yeah, be totally, a, a different name. spelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And Boscags, if you don't know, was actually in the original Steve Miller band. I didn't know that. Yeah, I listened to a podcast with Steve Miller not too long ago, and I was that's fascinated. I didn't. Yeah. I, I, he was he really was that whole band. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't really understand how it was. I don't think about it as like a, a Dave Matthews band type thing where Dave Matthews mm. is the is the you know the the thing that everybody joins around. Steve Miller band was always kind of this like uh I don't know that that this group of people that just happened to have a guy's name, you know, but I, I didn't mm. realize how much he he really was at you know writing songs. He was a great guitar player. Yeah. Had had some had some uh good stuff going on that that uh didn't really know about just because it was before my time a little bit yeah. but i didn't know that boss gags was in his mm -hmm. on the original band the back when the, the space cowboy and um lived in the usa era golly yeah. yeah that was one of my hot summer nights concerts with steve miller band maybe were you, twice were you the night were you there the night that the storm came in and cut him short and it was like i don't i may i may not have been, i don't remember that there was a night that like the storm came through he had to quit and it kept on the storm kept on going and blew the tent off of that hot summer night's tent really yeah blew the top of it off man I, I, so I remember seeing hootie and the blowfish there too yeah, a couple times there too. yeah um so i i heard i forget who was here it might have been the born and raised guys that that were here it may have been rusty telling me that uh world's fair is ready to go again ready to ready yeah. to to be a to be a music venue like it was tennessee amphitheater before. is a really good venue i don't know why it's not been used more through the years yeah is it a tough room if you're a band just because it's so if you don't sell it out it's just a bunch of concrete bouncing back at you well i mean it, it actually has good sound and it's there's one dead spot in it i mean when i was reviewing shows all the time i would walk around the hall to see what yeah. everybody's experience was like right because i could review it and you know not just in i, I would generally have a really good seat mm. So I'd walk around and see what everybody else's experience would be like. Tennessee Amphitheater has one little dead spot in it, but other than that, it's great. And it's I think it's pretty good for bands, really, even if is the it? crowd's not that that big. I saw um, Ashley brought a, a Africa Festival one time that had just incredible artists in it. Did you get any Femi Kuti or anything like that? Well, or? no, Femi Kuti. Uh, Femi Kuti has been here. Fela Kuti, Fela, his, his dad, dad has yeah. not. You know what? Never played yeah. here, but um, it had uh, his name's going out of my head right now. Um, well, there's like that whole group, like Baba Mall. Baba Mall was one okay. of the yeah. headliners. It had uh, Molotini. Uh, it had uh, gosh, I can't remember. I've seen so many acts there. there was when a, was it that this African festival came? That would have been the early '90s. Okay, I think maybe mid '90s. So you had the amphitheater, and then you had the lawn too, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hear the lawn is back. Didn't Moon Taxi do a do a thing there? Uh, yeah, I think not, they did. Not too long ago. I haven't kept up with as much, you know, since I don't cover it all that much anymore. I mean, I write for Blank, but I'm not. It's not like when I was at the Sentinel and I had to keep up and cover everything that came through. Right. So, so when did the Sentinel stuff come to a come to a close? Was that the Gannett 
deal or was it the uh, the paywall <laughs> or, or just when digital came along and they couldn't keep anybody on or it was just it was an ongoing thing i mean at the new sentinel we would have these great pep talks where they'd say you know prince dying it's dying we're gonna die yeah <laughs> you like, know it was can, like the stupidest some, thing in the world yeah. and it's like uh you know oh it's everything's digital and but you know they couldn't figure out a way to make money to, the, the digital product. That's what was crazy is that it was so free for so long after everybody else went behind a paywall and made you subscribe to stuff digitally. Right. They just kept giving stuff away and subscribership went down. I mean, it's the cord cutting you're seeing going on now just well, with print. What they were doing, I mean, the people who own newspapers now don't like newspapers. What do they like? I don't know, but okay. they don't like newspapers <laughs> and they don't understand them. So, I mean, newspapers didn't die. They committed suicide. Gotcha. And uh, it was infuriating to be at a newspaper and watch it happen because you sure. could tell that they didn't appreciate what was good about a newspaper. I mean, part of what's good about a newspaper is you know, you, you're, it's tactile. You're holding it in your hand. Yeah. It gets you off of digital media, which people get tired of. Newspapers are relaxing. Looking at things on your phone is not relaxing. Absolutely. You don't have any light blasting in your eyeballs, giving you this right. physiological response. Right. And it's also, it's disposable. If you leave it someplace, you don't have to worry about it. Right. You, it's not much. And plus, you it's, it doesn't just give you what you want to see. It gives you this headline that you might want to read, but didn't think you might want, you know, you needed to read it. Yeah. And it, it was just a much better medium than yeah. digital media. Absolutely. Um, I remember we... One of our closest friends moved here from the Netherlands in like 1999 or mm -hmm. 2000 when the new Sentinel went all color. Mm -hmm. Were you there at the time? Oh, yeah. So he moved He moved here from Holland because they he teched that he engineered the printing presses. Was there like this big this big overhaul of the of of the. Do you remember that? Do you remember when it went full color? Yeah. I think it was like 2000 or something, something like, like that. Something like that. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was. But then it didn't. I mean, I'm sure it was an enormous investment to, to in all this equipment, right. all these printers to just eight years later, to use your term, commit suicide. Right. Well, that was the interesting thing is we, the new Sentinel was downtown where it should have stayed. Where was it? It was on Church Avenue. It's uh, There's a Hilton or something. I can't which, yeah. which hotel, hotel is there it is. Now. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Right. It was right there. And, you know, the trucks would go out of the, the, the garage downstairs and, you know, hit the interstate. Off in every other direction. Yeah. I drove the trucks for a while, too, before I became a rider. Did you really? Yeah. Delivered papers mm -hmm. to Weigel's? <laughs> well, I delivered. Uh, I would deliver to, to uh, like, news, newspaper people, you know, the, the you know, say, I don't know what we call them, you know, newsboys. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of, you know, both genders and different people, but yeah, you'd leave the bundles and they would grab the bundles and then they'd take them off on their bikes or the cars. Four in the morning you're, you're doing this, you're dropping Well, that was when we were an afternoon paper. So I would do that. It was like, you'd get the papers like at one o'clock. Okay. Sometimes if you were lucky and then okay. get them out so that they would be there by the time people got home from work at five o'clock. Okay. okay. But that was where it, the Sentinel was located for years. And then they built the new building, which is over on Western. Mm -hmm. And new press and everything. Everything was great. We all had this, you know, lots of room. And you got free parking and all this stuff. But then it was like, it was like right before the suicide. Yeah. 
And I mean, they made money printing for other people, other other things mm. like that. But yeah, I, I've always wondered. Like, you see the New York Times sitting on a on a newsstand mm. in Knoxville, Tennessee. Like, that clearly didn't ship from New York City and make it to Knoxville, Tennessee by six a.m. Are they printing other papers? Yeah, they print same? other papers. I don't know if they if they print the Wall. I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal and New York Times stuff like that or not now. But but I mean, those they would they really would ship mm. early on. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and people would, if you had a subscription, they would deliver it. Generally, like with the New York Times, you just had a Sunday subscription, and they would have like an early edition, just like the mm. Sentinel used to have. I have to tell you a great story here in a minute. Yeah, but um, you know, the New Sentinel when we were an afternoon paper, we had the home edition and the final edition. Two editions a day? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the home edition would, like the deadline, or it, it would be printed at like 10 or 11 o'clock or something like that. And then go out in the newsstands, and it would go out to the hinterlands, the outlying counties. Okay. And then the final edition would go to, you know, all Knox County. And yeah. And then they would replace the home edition with the final edition. And that would come out later in the day, so it had right. more up-to-date stories that, that printed later in the day. Yeah. You know, so you would have different things. And, like, when I would write reviews, it would only show up in the final edition because huh. I didn't it, – it wouldn't – you couldn't and they have time in the home. Yeah, couldn't get it done. Right. I mean, well, they didn't get it in. Yeah. And then when we went to an after, when we went to a morning paper, it's like we just had the final edition. We just had one edition. But I'll tell you, the best, the best uh, bad headline we ever had. And this was this was great. We had an older copy editor who wrote a. There was a story about two diet doctors who went on each other's diets to see which diet was better. <laughs> And she wrote a headline that said, and this only came out in the home edition. I wish I'd saved a copy. I didn't save a copy. The headline was, Diet Doctors Eat Each Other Out. (laughs) Honest to God. That's an Onion article. Oh, honest to God. (laughs) Diet Doctors Eat Each Other Out. Yes, that was in the New Sentinel. Nobody caught that, huh? Oh my God, they caught it. They caught it once it was out, yeah. and it was like it didn't go in the final edition. But it was just like she had yeah. no idea. You can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was wonderful. So you said thirty six years you were at the Sentinel. Yeah. So by my math, twenty eleven is your uh, is your when you left. Is that right? No, I left. Oh, oh, two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Say two thousand seventeen. Yeah. Okay. Because you were there in 81. Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. My math is bad. I went to Bearden. Oh, that's, I understand. <laughs> so it was the Metropulse around then or no? Is it gone? Yeah, Metropulse was in that era okay. somewhere in there. And people always, that's the thing that drives me crazy is people will, I've had people argue with me that I wrote for Metropulse. You didn't? No. Okay. And I, I, Metropulse was fine, but Metropulse got a lot of credit for what things that we did and I At know the that. Sentinel? Yeah, and I know that because people were always saying, "I read you in Metropulse every week," and you never read me in Metropulse every week. You read me in the Sentinel. So how they how did how they get mixed up? How did people think they were reading your stuff in the Metropulse? <sighs> were Metropulse writers uh, using you as inspiration? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, they. It was just that people associated Metropulse with you know what was cool and what they what they mm. enjoyed reading, and it's like they if it, somebody saw one of our sections which were you know tabloid size the friday entertainment section was tabloid size for a while the sunday one was and uh, they just associated metro pulse with that okay but yeah i mean i've had i've had friends pretty good friends introduce me as writing for metro pulse and it's like i never wrote for metro pulse did will write 
write for the Metro Pulse at all? Do you, do you know? Yeah, he did. And uh, then he wrote for the Mercury. Did you write for the Mercury at all? No, that was Metro. That was a that was the other folks from Metro Pulse. Okay. And I mean, I have nothing against those folks. I'm just right. It's just. But because I, you were edgy and or not edgy, but you were doing the cool, you were the cool guy at the Sentinel writing about the cool stuff. People thought they read it in the uh, in in the in the local arts. I guess I don't freebie. know. But yeah, we did a we worked really hard to be as you know as good as we could possibly be, and you know it's because we were the big paper. People loved to diss the Sentinel and and yeah. everything about it. Yeah, I I guess I understand that. I I don't buy into it myself, but yeah. I get it. So in 2017, you leave. Did you did you write for? Uh, did you write after that? Well, I wrote for Blank, and I knew. I mean, I knew that I was going to eventually get laid off. And in fact, I went into the editor and said, "The next round of layoffs, please lay me off." Yeah, from the Sentinel. Yeah, because were they offering a package or anything, or were they just like, "Get out of here, fine, um, good luck." We had a we had a union, and they oh, still have okay. a union. I was president of the union um, when I left, and uh, the contract was still good, and you got. Two weeks' pay for every year you've been there, up to a full year's pay. And I, oh, yeah, since you, I'd been there for so long, you got I got that. a full year's pay. Cool. So you had some time to figure out what you wanted to do right. after that a little bit, right? And, I, and like I said, they were being the president of the union. I had to sit when people were laid off and take notes and make sure that they were doing things by proper protocol. And then I would fight. Yeah. Our union would fight to get them a better package, a better deal. Right. When be laid off. Right. Right. But. Um, What's a shop steward? Did you guys have those? We have those in the film business. No. Yeah, the 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 union shops have like somebody who's keeping an eye out on set all the time to make sure you're, you know, not getting into meal penalty hours and all that. No, we never had that. But I mean, yeah. you had we we had everybody kind of policed a little bit. Okay. It was it was pretty loose. But Did you guys ever have any uh, any work stoppages or anything while you were working there? No, we had a a, a clause in the contract, a no strike clause. Really? Yeah. But I mean, we picketed and things like that here and there. Okay. But I mean, it was just it was it was silly because they kept. We had to take a pay cut at one point. People weren't getting paid very much anyway. Right. We'd go for you know we went for ten years without a raise. We finally get a raise, and then they threatened to lay off people if we don't take a pay cut. Yeah. And I mean, it was it was like I said, it was it was the paper committing suicide. The people at the top making as much money as fast as they could. Yeah. And the people, the product suffering and losing readers. Well, were these were these the the scripts and the gannets of the world? Were they finding interest in other other places? Were they were they saying, well, paper's dying, so now you know we own a bunch of news stations. Oh yeah, well we that's can... what Scripps Howard did. Scripps Howard went into television, yeah, and did lots. I mean, they were they liked television stuff, and they didn't care about newspapers, and so they. Broke off the television stuff, and then they mm. sold the newspaper stuff. And the Gannett bought, eventually bought the newspaper stuff. And right. Gannett, you know, kept cutting and kept cutting. Scripps bought HGTV, DIY Network, all right. that stuff. Yeah, it's it's very depressing. We got to talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an it, it's an interesting era because we're I feel like we're going through it again, just with a different medium, and and that different medium is cable television. And it's you see streaming popping up everywhere right. now, and the ones who are adopting and 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 mm-hmm. leaning into the new stuff are the ones that are living, right. and the ones that aren't uh, are, are are going by the wayside. That's why you see, you know, everybody and their brother is coming out with a streaming service. You got right. Discovery Plus now, Disney Plus. Uh, you know, they've all they've all got their own streaming platforms and right. some of those you might say are a little late to the game, but it's just it's so interesting to me how all these different mediums 
you you can't just stay still. You right. got to adapt. And if you see that, then if you see some some stagnation, then it seemingly uh, 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 plays as suicide. <laughs> it well, appears the, that way. The big thing, and I mean, this is what I saw in newspapers, and I've seen it in other other things too. I mean, you have to recognize what makes you special. Mm. You have to recognize what you can do that other people can't, and other platforms can't. And if you just adapt, you know, you just everybody rushes to the next new thing. They lose this thing that's special. I mean, that's what the newspapers did: is they got rid of their local people, they got rid of any reason really that you needed to right. buy that specific paper, yeah. and gave you the same thing everybody else was giving you in, in every market. Right, and that's what streaming is going to do too. Right, you know, you need to find. It's like I mean, it homogenizes everything. Right, and it takes away what is special right. that you can do. Right, I mean, people like Disney, you know, okay, I mean, that's a brand. You know what you're going to get. Nobody's going to give you what Disney gives you. Right. But, you know, if you're HBO or something, and I mean, I have HBO Max and I like it, but it's like you got to know what you can do that other people can't. Is that what drew you to blank then, to work with blank newspaper? What is... drew me to, yeah, kind of what drew me to blank is they appreciated what they are. Yeah. And I mean, I love Rush, Rusty Odom. He's a good friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine um, ever since the second year of Wayne Stock. That's when I met him, and I I think Blank does a good job. And, I mean, he believes in print, and very few people do anymore. Yeah. But and he believes in local. Yeah. And that's exactly what big newspapers are abandoning. And when you have someone who believes in that, you, you need to support them and be with them all you can. And, I mean, I love being with Blank. I appreciate it. I, I, I'm proud to be with Blank. I was not really proud to be with the Sentinel the last couple of years. That means something. That means a lot. It I mean, does. It, and it, it means a lot to me to have, you know, I mean, I, I'm not able to, you can't pay that much because you're not making that much money. Right. But I mean, it's important to me to be with somebody who believes in the medium and mm. believes in writers and doesn't say, well, you've got to make this 10 inches. Right. You know, he gives you the room to tell the story if right. you want to tell a story. I wrote a thing That's on great. writing for the, I mean, I wrote a, a piece last year when I was a census enumerator. And What's it was, that? That's when you go around and, you know, people who haven't filled out their census. And yeah, you go, you go and, to their door and right. talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean, know it's called an enumerator. Yeah. Yeah. But I wrote a piece on that and it was like, it didn't matter how long it was. He was going to run it. That's great. And it it meant a lot to me that, that's what he would do. It's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how long it is. I wrote a, there was a piece that I, that the Sentinel wouldn't let me write at the time on a, a thing called Pranknet, which it's, it, if you go back on blank and read it because it's unbelievable. Can you explain it to me? Because I was, uh, I was told that this is a big thing it was, and I should ask you about it. It was insane. Well, what's Pranknet? Pranknet was this group of people who would play these horrible and evil pranks on people. Like not not just fun and games, no. Roy D. Mercer pranks. No, no. Like this was this these these were pranks that cost people thousands and sometimes tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand dollars in at least one case. Oh my God. Okay. They would call people up 
And I read about this on, uh, I think it was the Smoking Gun was the first place I read about okay. it. The Smoking Gun was actually the people who investigated it. My, I, my stuff was all very secondary. There was a person in Knoxville who participated in this stuff, and that's that was the local connection. And as I, a pranker? As one yes, doing the pranks? Yes, and okay. I interviewed her. Okay. And was it an was, anonymous interview? or did, No, no. She, she, she had actually turned some folks in. She regretted what she did. Ah, and turn state's evidence. <laughs> well, she talked to the FBI, and the, the infuriating thing is that they really didn't do that much. Mm. But these people would call the, the the most the classic one is they would call people who were staying in a hotel, pretend to be somebody with the hotel with like some emergency, and have them destroy the room. And they would. No. Yes. They that would is they broke awful. out television sets, they broke out windows. They would say there's oh, a gas no. leak or there's something. And they wake and the thing is they wake them up. You're vulnerable when you're woke up oh, and you say this no. is an emergency and somebody sounds very official. And they put this stuff out where people could hear it. So oh, people no. they they in one case, they had a person drive a truck. Through the lobby of a hotel. Wait, I can't. I swear I to laugh. you, this is true. Well, this the thing is, it starts out. You read this and you start laughing and you think it's funny. And the more you read about oh, it, no. you realize how evil it was, and how just mean these people were. But it, but it's not scammy, right? It's not like they're trying to get you to give them tens of thousands of dollars. No, they're just trying was, to put you up to some awful things. It was purely to humiliate humiliate people. There was one oh, case God. where. They played people against each other. They had, um, gosh, I can't remember how they convinced someone to pee in a cup. They were going to have to, they were doing it, like they said there'd been some sort of a leak and they needed to pee in a cup and they would test it, you know, take it to the lobby and test it. And then at the meantime, they called the person who was working the, the, the receptionist there and told them that it was an apple juice. They were doing an apple juice test, and somebody was going to bring them a cup of apple juice. So they had them wind up drinking this person's oh, urine. No, man. That oh, yeah. It is evil. It's evil. Are they sitting outside the window watching this stuff happen, or do they just— the, the leader, the gang leader of this was in Canada. He lived in his mom's, you know, you know lived with his mother. And uh, This yeah. is like Impractical Jokers gone terribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, and like I said, it's funny and you won't believe the things that people did. But once you, I mean, and what I tried to explain in this is how people can be manipulated. Because that's what's fascinating to me about it is you get people in a vulnerable situation and you can convince them to do anything. That is amazing. And this is what, I mean, and, and part of the point of what I was trying to make when I wrote the story was look around and see where this is happening now because it's happening. It's just like this QAnon bull. Yeah. People say the most ludicrous ass things and they convince people to believe it. And this is a this is a distillation of how that happens. Mm. You get people in a vulnerable situation and they believe it. There was one case. The case that stopped the person in Knoxville was she had called this person up who was a veteran. And it probably had PTSD. Right. And she convinced him to knock out the the little sensor for the um, fire alarm. The fire alarm or the sprinkler the system? The sprinkler system. Yeah. Up Just at, that little uh, piece of plastic. Right. It's that, a little glass usually. Yeah, it's not once it catches on fire and gets hot, it, it sets blows off, out. And, yeah. it, it, and sets off she the had him yeah. knock that out. And, and she heard how distressful, how, how upset he was. 
and it finally hit her what she was doing to these huh. people. And I mean, it just destroys room. There was another guy that was he was uh, um. I can't think of the word now. Um, when you're you've been let out of jail and you're uh, parole, he was on. It wasn't probation. Probation, and he did something. She convinced, not she. I'm not sure it was her, but this group convinced him to do something to a hotel room, and he was going to wind up going back to jail. Yeah, violated his probation, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so how did this whole? So, as you're uncovering all this or or documenting it, how did this whole group of people? find each other and was it like a QAnon thing where it's an I mean prank net I assume it took place on the internet right so it's this group of people who mm -hmm. are and they, they all connected with each other and you know one of them was a child molester and I mean there was all just all sorts of things these they were not for the for the most part they were not normal people gotcha but the thing it is is masochistic stuff sadistic sadistic sorry yeah that's the but other way. it's just like you, you know i mean i had the same reaction that you had when i first read about You're it like, so oh, i started laughing crazy, hilarious. Is, yeah. Yeah. yeah and then the more you get into it the the worse it gets and the more you realize that these people i mean and the the first place i read about it i read about it without knowing what it was initially because there was a um, it was like a kentucky fried chicken i can't remember where that one was but they called and convinced these people to set off the the fire extinguisher stuff, and they were doused with the the fire extinguishing chemicals. Right, and they told these people that it was toxic, and so there was like all these people who were undressed, the workers at the Kentucky Fried Chicken, out in front of the Kentucky Fried Chicken, calling the fire department. Right. The fire department shows up to all these nearly naked, naked people. people out in the front, and you know you read about it and you think, oh, this is hilarious. But then you realize the intent was yeah. You realize it's 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 very evil and it hurt these people very yeah. much. Yeah. How, where'd you write about this? This was in blank. This was one of the first okay. things I wrote for blank because it was something I wanted to write about in the Sentinel. They wouldn't let you. And they weren't interested. It was too, too, too edgy. Didn't have enough well, sources. They, what was it? They just decided that it was too late after the fact. Even though I found the local person who was a connection. Gotcha. And I mean, you read it and it's just. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Somebody told me to ask you about something else too. What Grammy nomination? Yeah, did you get nominated for a Grammy? I was Grammy nominated for um, liner notes or something. Mm -hmm. uh, it's best album notes. It's great. I need to start a music career so I can say Grammy nominated artist. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, Bradley Reeves and I wrote a book on Arthur Q. Smith, who was a songwriter here in Knoxville. Okay, back from the late '30s up until the early '60s, he wrote lots of country hits. And he was an alcoholic, and he sold them for sometimes $15, sometimes $25. And some of them became big hits. Really? And Sold he, his songs? Sold his songs. Other people put their names on them. Hmm. Sometimes he kept half of them. Sometimes yeah. he sold. Um, there's the great story that when he died, at his funeral, two people got into a fight because they had both bought the same song. Hmm. And he was just doing it to buy another bottle of cheap vodka or something. Well, I mean, it was it was beer and it was anything. He would drink yeah. anything. But um, his family still live here in Knoxville. And I wrote a story, I wrote a column back in the early '90s, and Bradley read that and became fascinated with him and started gathering all this information, and wound up getting in contact with the folks that ran Bear Family Records. Mm -hmm. And got them interested in doing a collection of his music 
both. I mean, because Bradley had found like these original acetates of of Arthur Q, and he'd released a few songs. I mean, he'd done a few records himself, but um, he had gotten all sorts of information, and we wrote the book together. He had most of it. I wrote about a third of it, I guess, and then we, you know. adapted i mean it was what he had originally was actually just very good it could have gone as it was but i made it better uh-huh. and added a lot of stuff and i you know i was the first person who had written about it that he'd read about and i knew the family gotcha and they're they're really good people so how does the academy find out about this um i i think he actually alerted them to say you know here this is you know okay. nomination and being immodest we should have won really because we changed i mean what we found changed history. I mean, it we so? we had receipts. We had proof that he had written these songs that other people wow. had taken credit for. Wow. So it's investigative kind of stuff. Yeah, it was. And we had all the evidence. And I had talked to people all through the years. I talked to Bill Monroe about him. I talked to wow. Chet Atkins about him. And, I mean, it was Red Rector and his wife, Ernestine Rector, who we all call Parker, that had turned me on to this information to begin with. And I wrote about him in 85, that first series I was talking yeah. about. That's what, that's where I first wrote about him. And then wrote a column when I, I met the family. But uh, but the way the Academy works, I mean, I'm on the, um, the committee that reads liner notes now, this year, and I was two years, the year before last, the year after we were nominated. But... Uh, I can tell you for sure it really the honor is being nominated because those people read the liner notes and the yeah. people who vote in the final round they just see they a vote name. for the biggest name yeah so yeah. Otis Redding liner notes because people know Otis yeah. Redding's liner notes won gotcha. the 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 one that if we didn't win should have won was the one on Washington Phillips because mm. that was new information Washington Phillips was this great obscure artist gotcha so you mentioned Wayne Stock mm-hmm. earlier right. how does a gentleman get a festival or an event like that named after him well with an unfortunate situation my um my uh, oldest son andrew died in 2010 sorry i appreciate it and uh he had a heart condition that we thought was over when he was six months old and it came back one night and killed him really yeah when he was 23 oh my gosh and uh you know my friends steve wildsmith and tim and susan lee and uh Steve, or I said Steve, I think Tim and Susan and uh, Will Wright was in that first group, and Nick Harrison and Jason Knight, and uh, I think Don Coffey may have been at that first meeting. The who's who. But um, at Andrew's memorial service, they met before the service we had it at uh, the Bijou Theater, and they met and came up with the idea for Wayne Stock. Wow. So um, they put it on, they pulled it together. Um, Andrew died on December 10th. And they had it on the last weekend of January, first weekend of February. Wow. And uh, yeah, the, pulled it together what, in that amount of time. I remember when, when Will was here, he, I, asked him, I, I asked him why they decided to do that. Or maybe he offered up the information. Maybe mm-hmm. he volunteered it. But he said, because Wayne Bledsoe is such an amazing human being and so important in all of our lives that we wanted to lift him up uh, because he deserves it. Oh, and very sweet. It, yeah, I thought, but but that's really you know I of course known your name all those years, but I didn't didn't realize how important you are were to so many people or how important you are to so many people and how how much people appreciate what you do so much that 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 they want to show you that 
They want to show you that. They want to treat you like you treat them well, and have treated them. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was very important. Um, it was very important to me. I mean, I'd already lost my wife 10 years before that. So I'd raised my Man, kids alone. Wow. And, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, is it reduces you to zero. When you lose somebody? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, when my wife died, it was like, I was, I, I was here only because I had three kids to raise. And then when you lose one of them, it's like you are so devastated that, you know, people kind of have to take care of you. And I'm, I'm not somebody who ever like let people take care of me. Right. You're the, you were the, the, the guy taking care of everybody else or kind of in yeah. some ways, but, but they did. And I had to, you know, humble myself and let them do it. And it was, it was very healing. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and I lost my, my younger son last year. So sorry, Wayne. So um, hopefully, I mean, I'm, oh, I haven't talked to everybody about doing Wayne stock for, you know, 2022, but I hope to do that and, you know, have like maybe the Thursday be his memorial service because he died in the middle of COVID and we only could have a very small handful of people. And he had tons and tons of friends. He was a musician too. He was, he was in Yak Strangler. That was his band. Yeah. And he was in the, Crumb Snatchers uh, is the drummer. His name Ryland. Mm -hmm, Ryland. Yeah. Had somebody in here who shed a few tears over him. Who was uh, it? Uh, it was John Worley. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He and Worley were very good friends. Yeah, they played a lot together. But uh, how but, do you how do you stay strong, man? I mean, you've been through you know so so much. How do you uh, how do you remain this? <laughs> I don't know, the strong individual that I see sitting across from me and not wrecked. Well, I mean, you do get wrecked. I mean, um, in fact, one of the things I'm writing right now, um, uh, I have an on two ongoing projects. One is a history of East Tennessee country music, or not country music, but East Tennessee music. And the other one is a thing on, on grief because all the information on grief sucks. It's really? terrible. And, uh, you know, what I'm writing right now is, is very foul mouthed. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And what I would have wanted to have read when I was going through it. But I mean, the only reason, the only thing I can say is, you know, I've always been here because, and I've gotten through it because there are people who depend on me, you know, mm. with, when Andrew died, I, I still had two children who were at the time 18 and 14. Wow. My daughter's was four, my daughter was fourteen and my son Rylan was eighteen. And when Andrew, I mean when Rylan died last year, he's twenty seven. And uh, I have still have my daughter. I have his grandson. I mean my grandson, Rylan's son. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I still have my mom's eighty five. I have to be there for her. So is it do you think that's do you think without that, without having to be strong for everybody else, it would it wouldn't be i mean it would be a lot tougher is that the thing that, that keeps you going is you have to prop up everybody that depends on you well yeah kind because of because it just it seems to me like it would be really easy to say damn it why me and feel sorry oh you for do yourself. that all the time really and it's um you know i really can't explain it other than uh, when when andrew died and I talked with Rylan and Lauren about it, and it's like we were all thinking of each other, mm. you know, taking care of each other. And that's what got us all three through it at the time. And, 
You know, I, I, I hate it for people who don't have that. And I mean, and aside from my family that depend on me, I mean, there are other people. I mean, it's, they're different musicians and close friends. I have more close friends than anybody I know. And that, you know, they depend on you too, and I depend on them. It's, I think that a, a part of it is is having that connectivity. I mean, people who have religion, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm agnostic, and I don't really have any belief in a higher power. I do believe that there's something that goes on that's sentient, mm-hmm. at least for a while. But uh, you know, if you have religion, you have that thing that's like, okay, there's a reason for this. The one thing okay. that pisses me off more than anything is when people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. And I don't know how, how foul can I be on here? As foul as you want. Fuck you if if that's what you think. Really? It's stupid. Yeah. You know, I mean, I look at my life and it's like, well, what was the reason for my wife dying? What was the reason for, you know, <laughs> two sons dying, two right. children? Right. There's not a reason. Things happen. It's, you know, life is to some extent chaos. I mean, everything happens for some reason, but it's, it's a, a, a reason that, you know, you didn't detect a heart problem. It's the reason you didn't detect a you know mental health problem. You didn't do any weren't able to do anything about a mental health problem. Right. You know, those are the things that are the reasons. It's not there's a divine plan. You know, there's I mean, I've survived this. There's no divine plan that I've survived this. Right. I think, you know, people I call it faith, I guess, you know. That's that's, that's what they what they lean on. That, and good for them. Yeah. I'm glad they have it. I don't. Right. You know, I'm not an atheist per se because I think you have to have to have a certain sort of faith to be an atheist. Uh, agreed. Yeah. You know, I, I believe that we don't know, and there's so much we don't know that hopefully when we die we will get information. I've, I've, uh, speaking of all of your, all of your close friends who I feel like that, you know, they may as well be family as, right. as close as it seems like you guys yeah, are. And it is. I, I talked to a bunch of them over the last week, but or over the last few days since, since I knew that we were going to be here. And one of them said something, um, that they said, you're so lucky to get to, to meet Wayne. Your life will be changed five minutes after he gets there. <laughs> he's who an, said that? He's an angel. That's what they said. He's an angel. I'm not an angel. Well, I I feel unbelievably um, uh, lucky to know you after after just hearing about you anecdotally and and all the things that you mean to so many different people and to a town um, that a town and a group of artists that rely on you um, not only to tell their stories but also to be their friend yeah. and. Um, I, I do I do just want to say one the moment I knew I wanted to meet you was uh I'd been to a couple six o'clock swerves I think uh-huh. it was it was there, there was some rhythm and bloom stuff going on at the time right but I was at a little iffy show at the pilot light oh my god and Will Wright says <laughs> Wayne Bledsoe get up here on stage oh lord <laughs> and you were you I were was on pretty the stage. Drunk, huh? you, you looked like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, you, I, you may have leaned uh, yeah. into the mic a few times, and uh, and and that's when I was like, man, you don't just have anybody. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're a little iffy, you don't just have anybody come up and uh, and uh, hang out with you on the stage <laughs> during the last song, unless they mean a lot to you. 
Uh, well, we we Will and I, we connected uh, really early on when we got to know each other. He's a very sincere person. He is, and he's. I mean, he's somebody I love. I mean, like a brother, and he's just wonderful. I mean, and and you know, one of the the best things I ever did was the rap battle with Steve Wildsmith, which he organized. Well, Will also told me uh, when he came on the podcast a year and a half, almost two years ago. Right. He said you you need to have. Because I always ask before people leave, I'm like, give me, give me three people that I should have on the podcast. Right. And he said, you need to have, uh, you need to have uh, Wayne Bledsoe and and Steve Wildsmith on together. They have this uh, fake WWF type <laughs> beef going on. <laughs> yeah. So what? Uh, so what's this rap battle? So he obviously is 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 back here pulling some puppet oh strings, oh, trying yeah. to get you guys. Well, see, <laughs> Steve, Steve and I got to be friends when he was writing for the Maryville Daily Times. I was writing for the Sentinel. We were kind of rivals. I have to tell you a couple of good stories about Steve. <laughs> and uh, we got so that we really, I mean, we really like each other. But our our relationship is basically a relationship of profanity. You know, we would. <laughs> We would insult each other in public, and you know. So this is where like, the fake beef comes from. Is yeah, he saying that, you like, know, fuck his, you, Wayne. Fuck, oh, his fuck wife. You, Steve. I mean, when when he we were at something when they were just dating his wife, she thought we hated each other. Really, didn't know. No, she you just had that type of relationship. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we just constantly say horrible things. <laughs> and um, the 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 best practical joke. I used to play practical jokes on people a lot. The best thing I ever did is Will Oldham, you know, Bonnie Prince Billy. Yeah. You're right, Will uh-huh. Oldham. He, uh, he, was, he was supposed to be a difficult interview, and I was interviewing him. We got along great. He was, he was a lot of fun, and I'm, I, I'm good with difficult interviews. People are supposed to be difficult because I don't ask stupid questions, and then they realize I know who I, I, they know are. know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. So we got along great. And he said, well, I guess I got to go. I, I'm going to talk to this guy, Steve Wildsmith. And he goes, oh, Steve? I said, he's a friend of mine. I said, make sure that you tell him that uh, the last guy you talked to said he was a real son of a bitch. <laughs> so Will calls up, <laughs> Will Oldham, and Will Oldham says, or he goes, uh, Mr. Oldham, this is Steve Wildsmith. And Will Oldham goes, yeah, Wayne Bledsoe says you're a real son of a bitch. <laughs> That, I bet that put Steve on his heels. <laughs> get this call. You know what? Well, the coach called me. It was hilarious. I've never laughed so hard. It was great. But uh, we get up. So Will gets us to do this rap battle, and this is a Will Wright this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, Will Wright gets us to do this rap battle, and it's it's like he's a big supporter of the Pilot Light, and, and we all love the Pilot Light. So he does it at the pilot light so they can like buy a central heat and air system. And we're one of the featured things on a little iffy um, show. A little iffy card. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, and I have to tell you, the best thing I've ever written in my life was the, the third, the opening of my third part of the rap battle. Do you remember any of it? Oh, oh, I remember the whole thing. Nearly. Can you hit me? Uh, let's let's see. Okay, hang on. Let me, let me. <laughs> You can find some of this on YouTube. Let me. Okay. And the second one is Steve Wildsmith is wanted in 27 states because he goes to schoolyards every time he masturbates. The, the kids start cracking when Steven starts whacking because they know that thing he's packing and they know how much he's lacking. When Steven was born, his. Let's see. When Steven was born, doctors, they, doctor said it was a button. His dad said, boy or girl. Doctor said, it's nothing. Uh, and his. Let's see. 
And his wife even laughs when he shoots that. Well, hang on a minute. Let me get it right. Hold okay, on. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Let's we see. Time. Even his wife starts laughing when she sees that little dick, and she calls it gunslinger because it shoots so quick. <laughs> the, uh, you drop the mic, the place goes crazy. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. But that's not the best line. That's the second one? That's the second best part of it. The okay. best was the third part of the rap battle when I said... <laughs> They call him bad motherfucker way down in the hood because he really fucked his mother and he wasn't any good. <laughs> That's the best line I've ever written in my entire life. <laughs> you wrote for 36 years. Yes. It's the best thing I've ever, best thing I've ever written. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't believe I missed it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, yeah, it was like packed in the, it was out in the streets at the pilot light. Did people, were people going nuts? Oh yeah. People loved it. People Bad. loved it. And Steve's were good too. I mean, were Steve. They? Oh yeah, Steve. Steve like got kind of sweet for a minute in the last part of it, and then he had a vision of me like as Lenny in of Mice and Men getting shot in the back of the head. <laughs> it, was, it was it was really touching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, a little red herring there. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we we're all thrown off a little bit. But it was so funny because I mean, I've you know me doing rap was like the <laughs> silliest thing in the world. And uh, I really needed, I needed a little liquid courage. And of course, you know, pilot lights all beer, but uh, Ben Savage, who's a really close friend of, you know, he's like a, a another son to me. He came and brought me some little airline bottles. So yeah. I had a few shots of vodka before I went on stage. And you were well rehearsed, I'm sure. Oh yeah. I mean, I'd gone over it over and over. That's why I can still remember so much of it. Yeah. Wayne, I am I'm so glad to meet you. And I really, I really appreciate you doing this. I feel like this podcast would not be a thing, uh, a catalog without your name on it. So <laughs> thanks. So I really appreciate it, and thanks for everything you do for for keeping our keeping our scene alive and keeping all of us informed, and for being such an important part of it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I'm glad we ended with profanity. Of course, <laughs> I am too. We didn't want to start with it. We've lost some people. <laughs> Wayne, take care, and I hope I see you again soon. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank you. How was it, guys? You dig it? Keep your eyes peeled for Wayne Stock. Follow us on Instagram at South of Scruffy. Check out our Patreon if you want to support the podcast. Be a patron. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week, all right? Pitch wire. Play me out. <laughs>